Welcome back to another episode at MD Queer. Today we're joined by another incredible special guest. My name's Bede, I'm the Engagement Officer at MD Queer, and I am joined by... I'm Rose, I'm from Teach the Teacher, and I'm the External Events Officer, and we are very lucky to be able to feature our special guest. My name is David Azul. I'm a senior lecturer, researcher, and discipline lead speech pathology at La Trobe Rural Health School, La Trobe University in Bendigo. I'm specialized in research in the field of gender diversity, voice, communication, and well-being. I was born in Germany and migrated to Australia in 2005, and I'm also a gender diverse person myself. So first off, we'd kind of like to introduce why um, we chose this topic and why we think it's important. So with the MD Queer Podcast Initiative, we really wanted to focus on aspects of queer health that we didn't feel were addressed appropriately. So I'm sure if anyone's listening, they've heard this rant before, but um, a lot of the talks that we started off with um, that the group was planning were very much like HIV based and very just like cis queer male. Um, and as the engagement officer, I really wanted to focus on um, topics that I felt were ignored in the community. And I remember going to a transgender and gender diverse talk last year at RMH. And one of the um, individuals was talking about how her biggest concern or one of her biggest concerns was constantly being misgendered on the phone. Um, and I thought that it was an aspect that I didn't even think about. Um, it didn't even occur to me that it would be such um, an impactful aspect. Um, that, and I also wanted to do some collaboration with Allied Health. Um, so that's why I thought this would be a good topic. Rose, would you like to? So we just feel that there's a huge gap and a huge disconnect, not just in terms of um, education in regards to transgender and gender diverse um, healthcare, but with allied health as a whole, even though as you know, medical students, as future doctors, these are the people that are there to help you and you're there to help them to take care of your patients. And if we don't know anything about them, that doesn't help um, us or any other allied health professionals at all. So we've brought in David as our very special guest to be able to introduce us to the idea of the role of the speech pathologist in the care um, and in the identity creation and support of transgender and gender diverse people. So I'd just like to start off with an acknowledgement of country. Um, I know all of us are in different areas right now, but um, where I am is um, in the Kulin Nation of the Wurundjeri people, and I'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I mean, I'd just like to acknowledge as well that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, so just getting straight into the bat, um, David, would you like to introduce the topic of what vocal training is? I would call it working with gender diverse people in the area of voice and communication. 
which is not necessarily only vocal training, but um, can include communication practices, also working with well-being in that space. Yeah, definitely. Can you tell us a little bit about why you um, became a speech pathologist? Like, what interests you about the field? I was always interested in languages and communication. And um, at the time when I was thinking about what I could do later in life, the only thing that came to mind was becoming a teacher and teaching, say, English to German people. But I didn't want to do that. And it took me a long time until I thought, oh, my mother's actually a speech pathologist. I could give that a go. So I had this resistance against doing the same thing as my mother. But then I got to go on a placement, which was really great. And I saw speech pathologists at work at a neurological children's hospital in Germany. And just thought, that's really great because you get to work with communication every day and you don't need to teach at school. Fair enough. Teaching is definitely a calling. It's not for everyone. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about what the role of a speech pathologist is? Because it's a very, um, we're, our audience is mainly medical students and it's definitely a part of allied health. We don't really interact with it all. Mm. Mm. It's becoming a bigger and bigger field and is changing year by year, I would think. But so in general, speech pathology is about working with people in the areas of communication and swallowing. So swallowing belongs to it as well and eating and drinking. And one can explain that in a way by speech pathologists being specialized in the upper part of the body, mainly the head, neck, throat, and also the lungs up to the diaphragm and the rest of the body doesn't matter so much for us. And I think because we are working predominantly with these parts of the body, that that's the reason why swallowing comes into it as well. And when we think about, for example, neurological conditions, they often affect swallowing and speech and language. So it does make sense to have one person responsible for working in all of these areas. And speech pathology is also a field that is not only located in the medical field, but certainly in Australia. Speech pathologists also work in schools and are part of the Department of Education. And then we're working with communication and swallowing across the lifespan. So it really starts with babies and finishes in palliative care. And communication, of course, can also be all sorts of things. So my area of specialty has become voice. And one would think, well, what's the difference between voice and speech? And in speech pathology, there's a difference because voice is only when the vocal folds vibrate. And as you might know, in speech, we also have sounds that are not voiced. And so speech is seen as a separate area. It's a very artificial distinction, but it's the one we're using. And then you can think about speech and language development in children, which is sometimes delayed. You can think about people who stutter, and we certainly work with children, adolescents and adults who stutter. You can uh, think of people with voice occupations, so say teachers, lawyers, judges, auctioneers, what have you. 
So people who need their voice all the time are often seen by a speech pathologist because their voice organ doesn't quite cope with that demand. And then a re really huge field is working in the area of stroke, neurological conditions of all sorts. So we would work with people who have aphasia, dysarthria, apraxia of speech. So these should be terms that are reasonably well known within medicine. But then also with people with disabilities who may use alternative and augmentative communication, as we call it. So this applies to, for instance, technical aspects of how we can support people with communication difficulties. And there are many, many more fields. And there are many, many more fields speech pathologists might work in. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up. I think as a medical student, we really don't know mm. much at all about the role of a speech pathologist. And like you mentioned, we really only are exposed to quote unquote, the medical aspect in hospital with stroke, with swallowing. Mm. Um, and it was very interesting, your explanation about the difference between voice and speech. So we were wondering if you would be able to sort of take us through just very in a very basic way, the process of speaking? Well, the good thing is we all know how to do it. Unless, of course, there are also people who do not speak. So that's important to keep that in mind. And so basically we know what we need for it. So we need a body that can breathe. We need a larynx that has functioning vocal folds. We need the tongue, the velum the oral cavity and nasal cavity. So we are moving our articulators, which would be for instance, the tongue, according to rules how, say in English, words are pronounced. So speech is something we do. It's an activity or a behavior that uses symbols for communication. But like I said before, you need a larynx for instance, that's not quite true. There are also people who've had a laryngectomy and they can also speak. So for instance, if they have a voice prosthesis inserted, then they can just speak like everybody else on the air they exhale. And of course, when someone uses a computer to speak for them, that is also speech, but it's just not generated in their own body, but it's generated in the computer. Yeah, and a really other interesting thing that I know some speech pathologists do is with um, kids with autism, um, not who are nonverbal, they can come up with these kind of like language boards. Mm -hmm. Where with, I'm sure you know a lot more than me, <laughs> in a specific area, um, where like if a child doesn't speak, they can just point instead and use that to communicate, and that. Mm. You make a very good point. So the term speech pathology is very misleading because it doesn't really say what it is we do. And it also has this association of pathologization in it, which I think is utterly unhelpful. But that's the term that's used here in Australia. In Germany, we have a different term, logopedie, which means the people who teach words like pedagogy of the word or language, so to speak. So it's a very different connotation that you would get 
from that term. And what you're referring to, Bede, is the difference between speech and communication. And like I said before, the overarching term of the field speech pathologists work in would be communication and swallowing. And so within communication, there are so many more options than just speech. So we have people who are hard of hearing or deaf and they would use sign language. We have people who cannot move their mouth or body very much. And so they might use computers to communicate. And we've got the whole question of multimodal communication, which basically means apart from speech as a modality, we have gestures, we have facial expression, we can point to pictures, to words, we can type. And so literacy is also a very important part of speech pathology, which belongs to it. And yeah, you do not need to be able to speak in order to write and read. Um, so you're totally right. It's a huge field and communication can be very, very diverse. Um, and before we go um, any further, um, I know you're subscribed to the thought belief of that like voice identity and communication in an individual is shaped by like practice focused constructionist perspective. Um, Could you <laughs> elaborate for those of us who have never heard of this before? Could you tell us a little bit about what this theory means? Because I think it's a bit, it's very important to kind of get our heads around this theory before we go any further into like what certain qualities of voice are attributed to who and how you can change or not change if you want. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in taking a transdisciplinary perspective to speech pathology. And I don't even, and forgive me for saying that, I don't think that the medical sciences are necessarily the best advice speech pathologists can get when they work in the area of identity. But I would rather say that disciplines like sociology, gender studies, transgender studies, feminist studies, they have worked on these questions of, you know, what is the self, what is subjectivity, and what is identity? How does it relate to language use? How does it relate to rules and understandings that are circulating in a sociocultural context? So these disciplines have worked on these topics for decades. And unfortunately, well, speech pathology and the medical sciences are in the same boat here. The medical part of the health sciences field hasn't really taken any of that um, inspiration uh, on board, whereas it's highly relevant. And so whatever I'm trying to bring into my research is normally coming from the social sciences or humanities, because I believe they have better theoretical understandings than what the understanding is that is commonly used in speech pathology, but also by people on the street. And so I'm sort of thinking if I say of myself, I'm a speech pathologist specialized in working with gender diverse people, which I could say, and it's probably reasonably accurate because this is where I spent most of my research in. 
um, then I cannot afford to have the same simplified understanding of the relationship between gender, body, voice and communication as just anyone on the street has. But I have to think about it in a more sophisticated manner. And so there are a range of implications of that. So the most important implication is that other than is frequently claimed, gender doesn't come in the body. So we aren't born with a gender. And by implication later, the human voice also does not reveal what the speaker's gender is or who the speaker is as a person. Um, but even though, you know, I think that way, <laughs> the other perspective that gender is given in the body is claimed in nearly every article you can read about this topic. And this is the, still the case to this day. So what my approach is, like you mentioned, I take a social constructionist approach, which basically means that for me, gender is not given in the body, but it is something that is produced in interaction between speaker and listener. And this interaction is a practice, so something that is done. And I say that and I believe in that because there's a difference between how I as a speaker identify in terms of gender and what the listener thinks, how I'm as a speaker might identify and also how the listener might perceive, say, my speech, my voice, my outward appearance in terms of gender and then how they interpret it. And so basically what happens in communication is that there are competing ideas about the speaker's gender. So the one idea is in the speaker themselves and the other is in the listener. And then the communication is about negotiating that these ideas of gender and uh, uh, hopefully negotiating it in a way that the gender that is produced in that interaction matches the speaker's identification. And this is why we've got the discussion around pronouns and forms of address. And so, you know, I say, well, my pronoun is they, them, theirs. And so, you know, I, I identify as non-binary and this is how I see myself. But most people would either classify me or my body or my communication as male or female. Recently, I'm more often addressed as male, but I've been called all sorts of things before. And so this is another example for that theory. So with the same body, with the same outward appearance, people might think of me as a man, as a father, so as an adult man, but I've also been taken for my child's mother. <laughs> or, you know, as a lady, or sometimes I'm taken to be an adolescent when people aren't quite sure whether they should give me alcohol or not without identification. And so here we have the question of age also coming into it. And then other aspects of my identities come in as well, of course. So as I said, I was born in Germany. English is my second language. So there's this other thought about me when people hear me speak that they think this person cannot be from Australia. So 
what do they think then? So they might bring together this query about where I'm coming from with their assumptions about my age and gender, and then they see me as a tourist or as a backpacker or something, which again, you know, has nothing to do with what is actually the case for me because I've lived here for 15 years and I do have residency, but all of that, you know, is not contained in my voice. So, and the meanings people make of how I look like and how I sound like have so much more to do with what they think about those identity categories than how I actually identify. And so, this is a key component of why I am, I can say, highly critical of mainstream speech pathology services. So when people work with gender diverse people um, in the traditional way of, you know, thinking that they can masculinize or feminize those people, because I don't believe that I as a clinician can change the gender of someone because it's sort of this thing that is always in flux. So depending on the people I talk to, they will have a different idea of my gender. And of course, also gender is something that's in flux for the person themselves. So as gender diverse people demonstrate, they you know might have identified once as say either male or female, but then this has changed and maybe some people change from male to female or the other way around. Other people find themselves somewhere in the middle or give up on the idea of gender altogether because it's not a very helpful construct that actually brings a lot of harm to people. So there are all sorts of ways of thinking about gender. And the other point is that I would also say it's important to understand that Gender is not under individual control. It's not given in our body, but also as soon as we go out and meet other people, there will be conflicting constructions of gender produced over and over again. And so if I work with a person as a clinician, we might work on a particular vocal presentation, right? And the client might identify with that presentation and I as a clinician might also be happy with that presentation. But that doesn't guarantee that when the client leaves the clinic, that the next person they meet addresses them the way they want to be addressed, because that's something totally different. Yeah, so in short, <laughs> that's what this terminology practice focused constructivist perspective means to me. But I think that's such an interesting and important concept, because I think it speaks to not just gender that comes through in communication and in that negotiation between people, but any other social identifier, like you've mentioned, which will be so different in yourself, between different people of different cultures, different religious backgrounds, different ages. And I feel like that's just very interesting and not what most people think about. I think mm. when they think about speech, they think maybe just a feminine voice or a masculine voice, um, mm. And so, well, I was wondering if you'd be able to speak about now, you mentioned that you might be able to work with a client and you would be happy and your client would be happy. What is it that most people come to you for? Is it that they feel that they 
are not being presented in the way that they authentically feel or are not being perceived as they wish to be perceived? How, how could you speak about that? Maybe I should clarify for the listeners that I'm not currently working as a clinician, but I work in that space mostly as a researcher. Um, but nevertheless, I've got an idea what people's concerns might be when they come and see a speech pathologist. So sometimes they don't even come on their own terms, but they're referred by someone. And in particular in the past, it's been very common that psychiatrists who are often in the position to assess gender diverse people, whether they can or cannot give them access to gender affirmation treatment. So that a psychiatrist would say, well, what you tell me about yourself and your gender sounds all very good. But when I listen to your voice, this is just not a woman's voice. So, you know, you have to see a speech pathologist to work on that. And so it's long been used as a sort of measuring stick, whether the psychiatrist thought the person who was trying to get access to those treatments was passing as the gender they said they were. And speech pathologists, I would say, have long been a little bit like the psychiatrist's allies doing their work for the psychiatrist in a way. And I mean, there's a lot to say about past treatment of gender diverse people, and it hasn't always been very pleasant. People have not felt that they were really supported by the clinicians they saw. And I can say that also about myself. So when I transitioned in Germany, certainly the clinicians I saw, I thought, wow, they don't know anything about gender. They don't know anything about me but I know what I want. I want access to these particular services because I think that they will help me. And so you sort of, you know, play the play along in the game with a psychiatrist um, just so that you get what you want. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a very problematic practice to sort of force gender diverse people to convince the psychiatrist that their gender is actually genuine. And so that could be one thing that a client says to a speech pathologist, well, I've been sent here by my psychiatrist and please regender my voice, make my voice more feminine or more masculine. And then uh, people can, of course, also self-refer to see a speech pathologist. And I would say from experience that most people would tend to conflate how they identify in terms of gender and how others perceive and interpret their gender. So when they see a speech pathologist and say they will be interest in, interested in voice feminization or masculinization, this wish um, usually combines that people want to be happy with their voice and that they want other people to perceive them to be a member of the gender they identify as and also address them in that way. And I think the basis of this idea is that in cisgender people who identify with the gender assigned to them at birth, all of this is seen to be automatic. So cisgender people are seen to be basically born with the right gender, they're born into the right body. And so 
when they speak and communicate, everyone gets it sort of what gender they are. And the idea is that cisgender people never had to negotiate their gender. So if you are cisgender, gender presentation and attribution is seen to come naturally. And if you're transgender or gender diverse, you have to work hard to achieve this, uh, what it's, you know, sometimes called gender congruence. So I would think that most speech pathologists wouldn't contest a request for feminization or masculinization, but would just say, yes, of course I can do that. I can feminize your voice. I can ma masculinize your voice. And um, the idea is also widespread that this is what we are there for. And well, I mean, I find that approach just very problematic. I mean, I would say what we need to do is we have to distinguish between working on a voice the client themselves wishes for so that when they listen to their own voice, they can identify with that voice. And so I think this is a very good thing to work on. And yes, I would agree, speech pathologists and other people specialized in voice and communication have the skills to help a person achieve um, a voice the client can identify with. And uh, those you know, speech pathologists also have the skills to achieve this goal in a safe way or to help the client achieve this goal in a, in a safe way. Because as speech pathologists, we are really interested in people not using, say, excess body tension to achieve those voice characteristics, but to do it in a functional way, in a physiological way, where people don't do inadvertently like damage to their vocal mechanism or to their body or even produce their voice with pain. So this is definitely possible and also within the scope of practice of speech pathologists. But the other point that is normally just not considered is that how one is treated and addressed and attributed by other people is a different thing. Because like I said before, each person has different ideas about gender to a certain degree. And gender doesn't exist in isolation, like you mentioned before, Rose, it's a, but it's interdependent with other aspects of identity. And so it does matter whether you're talking about gender in a young person or in an older person or someone who's Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or European, Caucasian, um, white Australian, all of these aspects and, and also, you know, sexual orientation comes in, of course, and, and aspects of disability, ability, a person's body shape, all of this belongs together. So this is one of the reasons why there can never be only one male or female presentation, not for the client, but also not for other people the client encounters. And so many gender diverse people, um, but often also cisgender people are misgendered in everyday life. And so my argument would be, you can't change that by changing the voice and trying to approach the ideal feminine or masculine presentation, but you can only approach this as a question of politeness, like a question of respectful interactions. 
And so basically there's an option to help gender diverse people develop assertive communication skills, say, to respond to these misgen misgenderings. And so, for instance, you know, responding with something like this, oh, I see you think I'm a man, but it's actually not true, I'm a woman, my name is this and that, and these are my pronouns. So to work on these ways of negotiating responses from other people that actually align with the identification of the gender diverse person. And I, I think what you mentioned in our earlier meetings that haven't been recorded, that I thought was very important, was your idea of respect, that a lot of this is if, if you're just trying to seek a, a, a more feminine voice or a more masculine voice, it's almost like chasing this impossible ideal that, you know, might never be achieved because the person opposite you might never accept that this is what you're trying to portray um, for yourself and your identity. Um, and I think what was so interesting and saddening was that a lot of it is just to receive some basic respect, mm. some, you know, human decency and respectful interactions in the workplace, at school, um, with your clients, with your doctors, um, and the feeling that you would like some legitimacy in the identity that you're putting forward. Um, and how, how would you address someone who isn't perhaps responding in the way that you would like to, to the cues that you're putting forward? Well, I mean, I have the choice. That's the good thing. I would take a decision dependent on, you know, what's my relationship with that person. So is that person important for my life? When people are just walking down the street or, you know, parents saying to their children, oh, be careful of the lady on her bike. I've received that comment many times. I don't have to stop and turn around and say, you just called me a lady just to let you know I'm not a lady, but a non-binary person. So based on my understanding of gender, it happens all the time that people disagree about someone's gender. So it doesn't do any harm to me if this also happens to me. It doesn't lessen my gender or my identity or anything. It's just what happens. But then if the same thing happens to me, say with very good friends, and I've already spoken to them and told them that I'm a gender diverse person and that I would like them to use they as my pronoun and they continuously don't do it and they're not even aware that they are misgendering me, then my decision would be that I would talk to them and that I would say something like this, what's going on? I've told you my pronoun, are you not respecting it or is it difficult for you to say? And I've met quite a few people who say using they for one person is ungrammatical. They won't use it. I think, come on. So that's sort of what I mean. Like you said before, for gender diverse people for whom it's important that they are addressed in a particular way, this is a way of being recognized as the person they feel they are. Because gender is so crucial a category, this is really about being accepted as a human. 
So if people do not acknowledge a person's gender, this means essentially that they are excluded from humanity. If we only have two types of forms of address, what shall we do? We basically can't address that person as a human. So then it becomes very problematic ethical territory. And this is also the dimension that is also deeply felt by gender diverse people. To a certain extent, this is comparable to instances when Aboriginal people have been addressed or referred to or mocked as monkeys. Gender diverse people tend to be referred to as objects, as an it. And such insults exclude a person from humanity. People might not be aware of what they're doing in some instances or just don't know what to say and are insecure when they encounter other people who are very different from themselves. And I think that's probably also important to bring into the conversation with gender diverse people to try and develop some understanding also for other people. So most people have grown up with this idea that gender is binary and that it is clear cut and there are only those two types of people. So the assumption is there must be something wrong with a person whom I cannot identify as one or the other. Otherwise, there must be something wrong with myself that I cannot identify this person's gender. And this is of course also not true. But rather, it would be important to try and challenge the taken for granted idea about gender and say, well, it's not a binary. It is not clear cut but it is a matter of negotiation. So developing some understanding of where the other person is coming from could be one approach, but also clearly people can take decisions and they can decide not to be friends with people anymore who disrespect them. And sometimes this might be a person's decision rather than thinking, oh my God, I'm still not good enough in my presentation. I have to change, I have to get better. And maybe then eventually they will address me in the way I want to be addressed. Instead, I think it's important to really call it out for what it is. This is about respectful treatment by others and it needs to be openly addressed. And there's a request for a particular form of address and names belong to that as well, of course. So I'd say it's important to find the strength to say, it does harm to me if you don't call me by my name. Yeah. And I think that harm can be extended to violence, to um, not feeling safe. And would that be, do you think, a common experience that a person would feel the need to pass in order to feel more safe in, in communication, in interactions? Yes, definitely. That is often also mentioned as one of the reasons why someone comes to see a speech pathologist, uh, the safety aspect. And safety is a very important and legitimate concern. Gender diverse people have been murdered, physically attacked, assaulted across the world. There are high rates of distress and suicidality. It's a, it's a very sad situation. But again, as someone who thinks about um, gender and diversity more broadly than being so focused on the idea that it all depends on a person's voice or it all depends on the outward appearance, 
I would say the cause of all of this stress and distress for gender diverse people is not that they present differently from the ideal of appropriate gender presentation, but what we call minority stress. So it is this stigmatization and rejection of people who are perceived to be not normal. And the way gender diverse people are presented in the media and in films, at times ridiculed. And for instance, also the discussion around the Safe Schools program in Victoria and in Australia. Can we talk about diversity in terms of gender and sexual orientation to young people? Or what will it do to them? Or religious understandings in which this diversity is cast as a sin? So these exclusionary, stigmatizing and pathologizing messages about gender diversity, they have a huge negative impact on gender diverse people and also on other people who are subjected to them. And this situation in which people are exposed to exclusionary discourses is not something the speech pathologist can solve in individual sessions with gender diverse people. Changing your voice and outward appearance is not a solution to this situation because you can never be sure whether the other person really has no doubt at all about you being a proper man or woman or whether they respect you as a human being. So what I think is important is to address minority stress in all of its components. At first, it's important to note that there are components of minority stress that are external to an individual person and that affect the person either in a negative way as stressors or in a positive way as resources for well-being. And there are components of minority stress that are internal to an, an individual person, again differentiated into stressors and resources. So not only people one meets randomly on the street, but also family members, friends or health professionals one sees can be external stressors or resources for well-being for a person. So in order for gender diverse people to feel safe in encounters with healthcare professionals, it will be important that those professionals reflect on their practice and make sure that they are perceived by their clients as a resource for well-being. In other words, that clients can feel culturally safe during clinical encounters. So it would be the role of professionals to take responsibility for providing culturally responsive care. And in individual sessions with gender diverse clients, we can address the ways in which gender diverse people respond to minority stress. For instance, what is called internalized transphobia would be an internal stressor because the gender diverse person applies the stigma that is associated with gender diversity to themselves. And this might result in depression, shame, and maybe also self-critical thoughts. And mental health professionals would be best equipped to support clients with managing those emotions and thoughts. Another way of responding to minority stress that is not helpful is avoidance behavior, for instance. Avoiding social encounters, using the phone, also avoiding the correction of misattributions. And the issue with avoidance behavior is that it increases anxiety. So this is again, not something we would encourage as healthcare professionals. 
Concealment, so not letting other people know that you are a gender diverse person is also not helpful because it only increases shame and other negative emotions towards yourself. And speech pathologists and mental health professionals are able to provide support for safely practicing replacing avoidance with approach behavior or practicing disclosure of gender diversity on the gender diverse person's own terms. So for instance, um, choosing the person you'd like to come out to, say letting your mother, your father, your siblings, your friends know that you are gender diverse and then also deciding what do I want from those people. So asking them, for instance, to use your name and pronouns, which might be different from the name and pronouns those people have used before. Um, so I think the solution for managing minority stress and safety issues is not to change one's voice and communication even more in the direction of ideals that are not actually attainable by anybody. But rather, we can help people to develop their voice so that they can identify with it and also like their own voice, which can already make a positive change to well-being. And otherwise, it'll be about practicing helpful responses to minority stress. So assertive communication, which is about how can I be in the world and be respected as the person I am without having to pass. And self-compassion. How can I replace self-criticism with being kind to myself, even though I might not be perfectly happy with how I present or with my body, my voice, or also my current responses to minority stress. So there's a huge overlap between mental health and speech pathology practice in transgender health. And I think it is very important to acknowledge that and also to draw a line between what can and cannot be achieved with voice feminization and masculinization. And I would think there is something that can be achieved, but not everything. And probably in terms of proportions, I would say a small part of what is at stake for a gender diverse person to feel safe in social encounters can be achieved namely enjoying your own voice use and identifying with your own voice. But everything that has to do with other people is not addressed in traditional approaches to working with gender diverse people as a speech pathologist. And I think you bring up some really good points about um, the psychologist's role and just addressing like schema and like internalized schema, which are like, um, I'm sure you're aware just kind of the little stereotypes we have in mind about how to behave and what situation and how to address people and person dresses a certain way, hairstyle, whatever you assign attributes to and just as a shortcut for processing. Mm. However, we really need to address those aspects as well and really break them down um, just because even if that's where your thoughts go um, kind of with the whole um, what's the theory called practice focus constructionist perspective it's really a dynamic um, perspective between two people um, well I guess multiple people but um, it's something that I guess isn't really talked about it's always kind of like the onus is on the like gender diverse person but 
it's really not like we really need to talk more about those connections um yeah. i'm definitely not articulating exactly what i mean because <laughs> it definitely feels as though um gender diverse people still have to fit into the gender binary some way just to be able to be perceived like you said as human um so that people can understand what kind of person you are this is not necessarily the case anymore i think at an earlier meeting we spoke about the option that in victoria you can choose your own gender classification on your birth certificate so that means you do not have to fit into the binary categories but there are a whole range of other ways of referring to yourself and I believe you can choose the term that best represents your gender identification for yourself. And this self-classification is then there on paper in a very important document. And I hope that that should also imply eventually that people have the right to be treated accordingly, according to that self-classification. So this has been a very important intervention. This has that has only been implemented really recently. But otherwise, I agree. In general, considering there are very few discussions of gender diversity, it is true. We live in a mostly gender binary society. And you've developed a framework um, called Assemble, where you um, that's supposed to help like approach patients. Can you um, walk us through um, what that acronym stands for and how it can help practitioners? So the acronym, before I'll talk about what the different letters mean, uh, in general, it has something to do with seeing voice and the meanings that are associated with it as an assemblage, an assemblage of a range of forces that have an impact on what voice is in a particular moment. So voice is understood as an assemblage in the model and it includes the understanding that those forces that impact on shaping the voice, they have some form of agency. So following this practice-based approach we spoke about earlier, agency is seen as a form of doing and a doing that is no longer limited only to people, but according to that model, for instance, biophysiological forces also act. They act on the body and in the body, right? But this is not an intentional acting or doing that is under control. And it's not necessarily a doing that is done by a human being, but Again, in the case of these biophysiological forces, uh, genes, hormones, or disease processes act on and in the body. Okay, so the acronym ASSEMBLE stands for the different types of forces that act on people, their voice, their communication, and well-being. The A stands for acknowledging the ongoing and dynamic agency of those forces in the sense I've just described. And the first S of assemble are the speaker practices. So what is the person say whose gender is at stake? What are they doing? And so really important to understand 
that I mean all sorts of behavior here. So for instance, regarding voice, a person's voice doesn't sound like it does just because of anatomy. Anatomy acts as a framework for voice production, but we move our articulators around, we open our mouths, we move the vocal folds, you know, they're just muscles. And yes, we can stretch them, we can relax them, we can move around the cartilages of the larynx. So all of this I would call voice use practices. We can speak at a higher pitch, at a lower pitch. And all of this is something most people can do if their voice production mechanism is working how it should. So these are speaker practices, but also lifestyle choices. So if we smoke a lot and drink a lot of alcohol, we might end up with a voice Tom Waits is so good at imitating. The way a person responds to minority stress would also belong to speaker practices. So what do we think? How do we feel? What do we do in the event that a person misgenders us? Well, altogether, these speaker practices have an impact on voice communication and well-being, and to a certain extent, they can be brought under control. The second S of assemble stands for sociocultural mediation of meaning-making practices. And I admit this sounds very theoretical. So basically it means that there are all of those understandings around gender, say, that have been around long before we were born and long before the speech pathologist was born. And these understandings and resulting policies, institutions, norms, expectations have had an effect on people whenever they've become popular and established, right? And these sociocultural forces are different in different parts of the world. And they also have a history. So, for instance, it wasn't always the idea that gender only exists in two forms. For some time, people thought that human beings are best seen as having one gender. Or there are different cultural contexts where also officially more than one gender is recognized. So all of those forces have an impact on people. As I would say, they mediate the meaning-making practices that are possible in a social encounter. People contribute to and embody these sociocultural forces, but they are also not under individual control. Another example of sociocultural forces are linguistic rules. So for instance, personal pronouns. In English, there is they as an option to refer to people in a non-gendered way. In German, we don't have that option. So it's very much harder to speak about someone in inclusive ways, inclusive of gender diversity in German, because it's really complicated. There's just been a discussion about a researcher who's made an attempt at suggesting changes to the German language to be able to speak and write in ways that are more inclusive. But there's been a huge public backlash, which was partly focusing on the fact that the suggested forms were hard to pronounce. So these are examples of sociocultural forces that influence meaning making all over the world. Another example, the same is of course true for normative forces or standards we use, for instance, in medicine and speech pathology. So 
we compare how does this voice score against the male or the female normative range. And so back to the acronym, the E and M of assembled stand for external material forces, which um, basically means everything else in a person's environment that is not sociocultural, but say mechanical, chemical, biological, thermal, technical. So for instance, in terms of voice production, if you have to speak against background noise, you have to use your voice very differently in order to still be heard. And this background noise is just there. You might not be able to turn it off. And the same is true for air temperature, humidity, things like that. And also say gender specific architecture belongs to external material forces. So as soon as you enter a public bathroom, that is divided up into male and female, you're automatically gendered and it does not matter how you present or what the pitch of your voice is. Okay, then we've got the B, biophysiological forces. So like I said before, genes, hormones and disease processes that operate within our bodies, they again not under our control they basically happen to us. Also, they happen to us in response to speaker practices, sociocultural and external material forces. But of course, the field of medicine in particular is focused on trying to influence these biophysiological forces in a direction to improve a person's health and well-being. Okay, only two more to go. The L in assemble stands for listener practices. So for the contribution of the people we speak to, how do they interpret us? How do they evaluate us? And what are their responses to the way the speaker presents themselves? So this refers to what I mentioned before, the external component of minority stress. The question of will I be attacked by this person or appreciated and respected? And finally, the last E of assemble stands for elected professional interventions. So the support services someone seeks to improve their health and well-being. In the case of gender diverse people, these could be endocrinologists to prescribe them hormones, could be a surgeon to do all sorts of surgery, could be a speech pathologist to work with them on their voice and communication, could be a beautician to help with epilation or makeup. These professional practices do not only have an impact on the client in terms of their interventions, which say might influence the body's hormone response, cut the flesh, lead to different voice and communication behaviors, shape the skin, but also in terms of how the professional treats the client so whether or not they're taking a person-centered and culturally responsive approach to their work. Yeah, so this is the assemble model. All of these forces influence a person's voice, communication and well-being. And crucial here is that a range of these forces are not under individual control. As clinicians, we can support the client with changing their speaker practices, biophysiological forces, and of course, also our own professional practices. But in terms of the other forces, we have to find a way for our clients to respond to them in a way that is good for the client. 
Oh, that was, thank you for explaining all of that. But it makes a lot of sense. Each thing has its own power and we only have so much control over how we respond or how we can um, change anything. So tagging along to that, especially the parts where you mentioned the interventions, our professional interventions, mm. um, if we could now sort of segue into talking about um, people who have been on hormonal supplementation and how that changes the voice. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of people who have taken testosterone um, hormone therapy, um, how does that change the voice? Well, it's interesting really. So again, normally in the literature, people would just make this blanket statement. Well, we don't have to worry about gender diverse people assigned female at birth because they will take testosterone and it will sort it all out. So what to say about that? So firstly, not everyone wants to take testosterone. Not everyone can take testosterone. Not everyone has access to it. There are a range of studies of people who've decided to take testosterone and increasingly those studies show that not everyone experiences a decrease of their voice pitch, but many people do. Why would people experience a decrease of their voice pitch? Because it is assumed that testosterone leads to a thickening of the vocal folds, their mass grows, they become heavier, which means that they have the tendency to vibrate more slowly and produce a deeper pitched sound. But really interesting, this sort of assumed biophysiological response to testosterone treatment has not yet been explored in detail say with an MRI study. So it's really just an assumption at this stage. And I would say a lot of research needs to be done to explain different responses to testosterone treatment in terms of pitch decrease. And we'd also need to check whether testosterone treatment is actually safe for people's voices. So the assumption has been pretty much that testosterone treatment in gender diverse people basically has the same effects on a person's voice organ as puberty has on cisgender male adolescents. But in the past, gender diverse people have only been eligible to get testosterone if they were older than 18, which means that people have pretty much finished puberty before they got their testosterone hit. And so this is very different from the ideal cisgender male adolescent who goes through puberty and experiences an increase in testosterone levels and at the same time as having a growth spurt, which then together leads to an increase in the dimensions of the larynx so that the cartilage framework gets larger, the vocal folds get longer and heavier. And it's a different situation compared to someone who has basically completed puberty and is also not growing anymore, say in terms of body height, so the idea would be that when gender diverse people take testosterone after puberty, that the framework of the laryngeal cartilages is basically given and it's as small or as big as it has gotten at this stage. But then if we assume that the vocal folds get thicker as a result of testosterone treatment, they would increase in mass, but not in length because the cartilage framework won't grow anymore. So one could imagine thick vocal folds trapped within a relatively small space within the larynx. 
And this could be one of the reasons why there are quite a few people who take testosterone and develop voice problems. And with this, it's really interesting to note that this has a history because for a while, cisgender women were treated with testosterone containing medications, I think to help with the effects of menopause and to treat cancer. And in the 60s, there were many reports about women who were developing voice problems as a result of taking this medication. So they experienced decreased pitch, but also difficulties with speaking loudly, with singing, with having a stable voice. And this actually led to a change in medical practices and people became more concerned about testosterone and its effect on voice. And so my argument is, if you take a very superficial, biologically determinist approach to the bodies of gender diverse people presumed female at birth after puberty, you would say their bodies and voice organs prior to any medical intervention would not be different from cisgender women's bodies and voice organs. And because of this, my approach is to be very careful with testosterone treatment and to keep in mind that there can be negative implications for a person's voice. And um, there are many gender diverse people who need their voice for their profession. And so we have to be careful that testosterone treatment doesn't do more harm than good. And so, for instance, with myself, it's not very severe, but I do notice it every now and then. I haven't had any voice problems whatsoever before I started taking testosterone, but now it's often when I talk for one hour or two hours in a row, which I often have to do in lectures and other oral presentations, I notice how my voice gets strained and rough and occasionally I've also lost my voice. So it's a real concern for me that there could be negative side effects of testosterone treatment. And also in terms of the positive effects, while in existing research overall more participants have experienced a decrease of pitch than not, it is not necessarily the case that the pitch decrease is comparable to the average cisgender male experienced during puberty. So a a decrease of about an octave, but it might be very much less in gender diverse people. And also there's no guarantee that testosterone treatment leads to a voice change individual gender diverse person would be happy with. You know, maybe they, they have a very different idea where they want their voice to be. And so therefore we cannot continue with making blanket statements that say that gender diverse people assigned female at birth who take testosterone generally don't need any professional voice support. And I think that's an interesting misconception that I held, that it was definite that your voice would be lowered and that it was, I thought it was the same sort of similar process to um, how the effects of puberty and testosterone on the vocal cords and the larynx would be. Um, and to think a lot of people like me, I would think, um, group the side effect of a voice change as the desired side effect, as just positive universally, that you want your voice to be deeper. But you you might want your voice to be deeper, just not with all of the added damage that might come along with it. So how would you say 
um, or how would you counsel someone to protect their voice in that circumstance? I mean, I would mention that nobody can tell them for sure what the effect of testosterone will be on their voice. But of course, we do also have voice care recommendations that we would talk about to anyone who comes to see a speech pathologist for support with their voice. For instance, drinking enough, drinking enough water is important because the vocal folds really need to be moist and the whole body around them needs to be well hydrated so that the vocal folds can function properly. We'd also speak about the negative effects of lifestyle practices like smoking or drinking alcohol on voice, how people can manage their diet and again lifestyle to reduce the likelihood of experiencing reflux affecting their voice organ. And for instance, using the voice loudly, speaking against background noise, trying to cover huge distances with your voice without having the tools to do that in a well-supported way would also be concerning and we could speak about that and how we can use our voice differently. The other thing we'd also support is that people look after their posture, that they learn to balance their body tension and develop efficient breathing. And this is a particular concern or can be a particular concern with gender diverse people presumed female at birth who have not had chest surgery and would like to hide their chest. There are not many good options to do this. So it depends a little bit on the shape and size of a person's chest, whether or not you can hide it without in some way limiting functional voice production. So wearing wider clothes or shaping one's chest through bodybuilding would not be an issue, but using a slouched posture and binding the chest could have negative implications for functional voice production. So in a slouched position, it is really difficult to speak as loudly as you would like. Um, and anything that deviates from an upright balanced posture affects the voice production mechanism in a way that is not as efficient as it could be. Using a binder might make it easier for people to use an upright posture, so that would be a good thing. But then depending on how tightly you bind, your chest will be compressed and this might lead to more tension in this area and might also limit your breathing. And so this is a very sensitive area to work in with gender diverse people because using binders can be so important for people to feel safe and good about themselves. So as a voice clinician who wants to work in a person-centered and culturally responsive way, I would consider a person's preferences for how they would like and need to present themselves to the world carefully and also respect these preferences. So I would mention the implications of binding practices and changes to posture for voice production to clients. And maybe it is possible to talk about the situations in which these practices are really important and other times when it would be okay for a person to take off the binder and assume a balanced posture. And we could also work in sessions with whole body relaxation or say massaging the area around shoulders, neck and larynx because any excess tension we've got in these areas will travel into the larynx and 
excess tension is never good for the vocal folds because they are really tiny and delicate muscles. So we have to look after them. And the idea of tension, I, I remember the story that you told us in our other meeting of your client who was really in quite a lot of pain as well because she was carrying so much tension. Could you tell us about that again? Yes, so that was a gender diverse person assigned male at birth who identified as a woman. And so when people take estrogen, it actually doesn't have an effect on voice really. There's an effect on breast development, the skin and the hair for instance. And so a lot of effects that may be desired in terms of outward appearance, but for the voice it doesn't really do much. And so the question is then, what can trans feminine people do to increase their pitch and also to shape the resonance of their voice? And so this client I saw must have done a few things intuitively. I don't know whether she knew clearly what it was she had done, but she must have experimented with her voice use to influence how her voice sounded. And so apart from vocal fault vibration, so the faster the vocal folds vibrate, the higher the pitch, there's also a contribution of what we call vocal tract to pitch perception. The vocal tracts, the space between the vocal folds and the lips, the pharynx, the oral cavity, the nasal cavity. So this is the resonating chamber of the voice, which filters and also amplifies the voice. And one thing that is relevant for pitch perception are the so-called formant frequencies. So certain parts of the vocal sound that are amplified in the vocal tract. And as a general rule, we can say the longer the vocal tract, the lower those formant frequencies, and the shorter the vocal tract, the higher the formant frequencies. And so what the client had done, she pulled her larynx up in her neck. And we can all do that. For instance, when we swallow, our larynx goes up. And so all the client needed to do was to just keep her larynx up there, which led to a shortening of the vocal tract, which meant the formant frequencies got higher and this contributed to her pitch being perceived as higher. This is also something we would work on with clients who would like to change their pitch and the timbre of their voice. We would work on changing the formant frequencies but we would teach clients how to do this in a safe manner so that it is not painful or limiting functional voice production. So what the client did was that she constantly held her larynx high up in the neck. And the good thing about this was that she was very happy with her voice and it sounded feminine for most people she encountered in her life. And this is what she wanted. But unfortunately, as a consequence of pulling her larynx up so high, she was in incredible pain. She had a chronic headache and her shoulders and neck were stiff so that she could hardly move them because of all of that effort she put in constantly. But she also knew if she'd let it go, there would be a change to her voice. And basically she wasn't prepared to make that change then towards a way of producing voice that would be less painful. In general, I mean, that's okay. It's always the client's decision what they want to do and change. So it was more important for her to keep the pitch and voice quality she wanted to present with 
then to start all over again and work towards increasing pitch and changing the timbre of her voice with physiological means in a functional way without pain and discomfort. Yeah. She had a risk of losing her voice just because I know just from like singing and stuff, a raised larynx can be very damaging to the voice in general. Mm. In speech pathology, losing one's voice means that the vocal folds cannot come together anymore to vibrate and create a sound. So it's a kind of involuntary whisper. And there are some people who lose their voice not because of nerve damage, which would lead to vocal fold palsy, but because of excess tension on the laryngeal mechanism, including pulling the larynx up high in the neck. And so this excess tension would lead to keeping the vocal folds apart and preventing them from vibrating. And so theoretically, yes, it would be possible for this client that she would lose her voice, even though it would be more likely that she would develop a very strained and hoarse voice quality and vocal fatigue, but not lose her voice completely. So to avoid that, that really drastic pulling up your larynx really, really high. Um, what are some of those strategies that you mentioned mm. to help increase the pitch of the voice? Well, the really important thing for people is to realize that all of us change our pitch constantly when we speak and certainly when we sing, also sometimes to quite a huge extent. So to make that clear to a client that they can already change their pitch and that they are not only speaking at what is referred to at times as the male average speaking pitch of say 120 Hertz. So what we can do is record people's voices or also have a live visual presentation of where their pitch levels are at so that they get a sense of how high or low it is. And then it depends a lot on people's skills and how much they can be developed, whether they can make the changes to their pitch they would like. Some people find it really hard to hear whether their pitch has increased or decreased. And sometimes they just don't know what to do to vary their pitch. Musicality is also an important component of these vocal skills. But basically, because people can already vary their speaking pitch, we can build on this skill and practice speaking at a higher pitch or to produce a more variable speech melody. So we may start with humming or gliding up and down a person's pitch range and then move from humming to producing syllables and short words at a slightly higher pitch than before and then increasing the pitch step by step up towards a target the client is capable of producing functionally and that means producing it with ease, with a balanced posture, breath support, and a good interaction between the vocal folds and the vocal tract without putting too much tension on the larynx and the vocal folds. So increasing pitch is something that needs to be monitored so that the voice production mechanism is not negatively affected and can remain as flexible as it needs to be. And there are also techniques to make changes to the dimensions of your vocal tract and form and frequencies. And you can also do that in a functional way. So for instance, spreading your lips slightly when you speak is something that leads to an increase in form and frequencies and thereby to an 
um, increase of the pitch level that is perceived. Yeah. And is that same principle to lower your pitch as well? All of these same things apply? Generally, yes. If you'd like to speak at a lower pitch, you would need to relax the vocal folds rather than tensing them and try and lengthen the vocal tract. For instance, if you push your lips forward, speaking like that, um, when you speak, or lower your larynx in the neck, this would lead to a decrease of form and frequencies and would be helpful for people who wish to present with a pitch that is perceived as lower. And there are also certain approaches to body work, for instance, the Alexander technique, which has been used a lot with voice professional singers and actors. And it's actually something that came from Australia. So the Alexander technique teacher works with you to make sure that you can have an upright posture and use your voice while releasing all unnecessary body tension, for instance, in the shoulders and the jaw and also in the muscles that move the larynx. And this can make a huge difference to a person's voice and has helped me with appreciating my voice more and using it more functionally. I didn't expect there to be such a role in just posturing yeah for I'm... the production yeah sorry Pete. oh no 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 same thing i like i knew the diaphragm was important mm. but i kind of forgot about everything else <laughs> <laughs> um my bad um, um no, yeah oh i was just going to talk about i do know a little bit um i don't know exactly what the anatomical portion is but isn't it like they try to make people i guess males are expected to place a bit more in like chest when they talk mm. while like quotation marks females normally place a bit more in their face when mm. they're speaking mm. um i'm sure there's an anatomical aspect of it um is that taught as well just to like speak a bit more from the chest and like feel the vibrations there over i guess your nose which is supposed to be mask i guess yes you're right there's this idea that the ideal male voice is characterized by chest resonance, where you'd be able to feel vibrations in the chest when you speak and sing. And the ideal female voice is characterized by head resonance, where you'd be able to feel vibrations in the face. So head resonance or so-called forward resonance is very well researched. Being able to feel vibrations around the mouth, nose and forehead when you're using your voice is an indication of an increased interaction between vocal tract and vocal folds, which is good and makes voice production very efficient. And when you can additionally produce voice with ease rather than having to put effort into getting your vocal folds to vibrate, this is then an indication of the preferred degree of glottal closure, where the vocal folds are barely abducted and barely adducted, which means there's less impact stress resulting from vocal fold vibration. So you can phonate with minimal effort and minimal injury to the vocal folds. And it is great for gender diverse people who have an interest in moving towards a voice that fits common perceptions of femininity, that this forward resonance focus is also an indication of functional voice use. What is called chest resonance is less well researched. 
I think the general understanding is that chest vibrations can only be felt when a speaker or singer uses lower pitch ranges, so below 300 hertz, and that the vibrations are caused by subglottic pressure oscillations in the first instance, and not so much by particular constellations of the vocal tract. So this is again an area speech pathologists need to be careful about, particular with gender diverse people who are interested in presenting themselves vocally with common understandings of masculinity. And if that means for a person that they want to avoid forward resonance under all circumstances, because it is understood to be characteristic of feminine vocal presentations. It does depend on how much a person uses their voice, but certainly for professional voice users, we need to make sure that they develop the skills to use their voice functionally. And so my advice for people who would like to feel vibrations in their chest is that it will come with whole body relaxation, relaxation of the vocal folds, which will lead to a lower pitch and also relaxation of the vocal tract. And so there's nothing they need to do. On the contrary, I would recommend against any attempt to change voice use practices forcefully. It won't help voice function and won't achieve the desired pitch lowering effect or lead to more chest resonance. But clearly, you know, that doesn't need to be your, your area of expertise. You're clearly, you know, very well read and very well researched in, mm. in many other areas. Mm. And you are a professional. And although now you've taken on more of a research role rather than a, a clinical patient client facing role, um, what do you think of the role of self-training? So I think a lot of people won't be going to a speech pathologist. I think a lot of people will be looking at YouTube. There's a lot of videos online. It's what, free. What's your, yeah, it's free. I think I don't have a general opinion about this because there are people who are just very good at that, experimenting with how they want to present themselves in the world, um, including their voice and being able to do that also in a safe manner. I'm thinking of actors, singers and impersonators who are able to demonstrate that despite a person's anatomy and physiology, they can produce all sorts of voices. And yeah, they are just very good at it. But it does require awareness, vocal skills, being able to look after your body and your voice, to be aware of excess tension when it occurs and to also notice when a particular practice isn't good for you. And of course, many people don't have that sort of background and many also report that when they try and imitate what they see and hear, say in a YouTube video, that they end up with problems with their voice and maybe also pain or that they find their voice sounds very unnatural and that they might not be happy with the results. So it's a little bit hard to say, but I think that given that voice production is fairly complex and there are so many factors that impact on it in a positive and negative way, I think it is a good idea to see a professional at least for a few sessions. And this doesn't have to be a speech pathologist, but can also be a singing teacher or an Alexander technique teacher or an acting coach. Just someone who knows about how to use one's body in a way 
that you can produce a functional voice, but also a voice that you can identify with. And of course, seeing a voice professional can be very expensive or there might be very long waiting lists, which is certainly the case in Victoria. And so the question is, what do you do instead? It's not easy. I mean, some people do benefit from online offerings. There are also apps that have been developed, but otherwise probably I would say people would need to save up for voice support as they have to do for other support services for gender diverse people, at least here in Australia. And we haven't even touched on um, in this podcast really at all is um, surgery as well to, to the vocal cords, to the larynx. Um, is the data there, do you think, or not, not really at the moment? Or is it a bit like most surgery, early surgeries where it's a work in progress? <laughs> it probably depends a little bit on who you ask. Personally, I am not a fan of surgery if it's not absolutely necessary. Because as I said before, the vocal folds are really delicate and I would do whatever I can to protect them. And also to be clear, what is the surgery? So there's surgery to shorten the vocal folds. There are approaches to stripping the vocal folds of mass with lasers and in so-called cricothyroid approximation, the cricoid and thyroid cartilages are sutured together, which is designed to lead to a permanent tensing and stretching of the vocal folds so that a higher pitch can be produced. There's Adam's apple shaving, which is more of a cosmetic procedure to create a smooth front of the neck. And there's also pitch lowering surgery. Either material is injected into the vocal folds to increase their mass or vocal fold tension is surgically lowered. So the surgery is either interfering directly with the vocal folds or with the laryngeal cartilages. And I think there's also a surgeon in the US who shortens the vocal tract. And in my view, there are a few issues with laryngeal surgery for gender diverse people. First, it is buying into this approach to transgender health called sex reassignment, where the idea is that medical doctors have the capacity to regender a person by changing their body. And the suggestion is here too, that this medical intervention fixes a person's problems with presenting their gender in alignment with their identification, with misattributions from others, and ultimately with their well-being. There are many reasons why I find this approach problematic. It um, suggests that imitating gender ideals is the way to go. It also sends this message of you can only be a proper human or person who can be appreciated and respected by others if you let the surgeon do these procedures to your body. Second, of course, there are more aspects to communication than just pitch. And so a person might be interested in changing their voice quality, intonation, gesture, word choice or articulation, because for all of these aspects of communication, there are gendered norms. And for someone who's after a perfectly feminine or masculine presentation, they would need to continue working on these other aspects after having had surgery. 
And the third issue with laryngeal surgery is that some people are so desperate to get rid of the so-called sex characteristics of their body because they believe these characteristics are the reasons why they are mistreated by others or why they don't feel good in their bodies. And so they are prepared to make this change that seems feasible the most important thing in their life. And they cannot attend anymore to the possibility of the risk of ending up with irreparable damage to their bodies. And this belief in a surgical solution to all problems a gender diverse person might experience in their lives can go so far that people would be interested in surgery to make their hips smaller or to have surgery to make them appear taller than they are. And here I think that people who work in transgender health have a responsibility to stop repeating the story that surgery is the solution or a good and comprehensive way of supporting gender diverse people. Some people are very happy with the results of laryngeal surgery and also the techniques that are used have become more and more sophisticated and difficulties that have arisen in the past can now be better addressed. But if it doesn't matter anymore whether the voice functions after laryngeal surgery, so if all that counts is whether or not pitch has been increased or decreased, but nobody cares about the fact that some people may have a very restricted pitch range or speak at a Mickey Mouse level after surgery, or if there's damage to the larynx or people lose their voice completely, have difficulty swallowing, then this is to my mind unprofessional practice and does more harm than good. We cannot exploit gender diverse people's desperation when they are at a stage in their life when they are prepared to participate in any intervention that holds the promise of being able to accept themselves afterwards and being respected by others as the person they are, regardless of potential after effects that might limit their quality of life quite severely in other ways. And just to bring that up briefly, phalloplasty, for instance, is a type of surgery that comes with so many complications people might end up being incontinent, unable to pass urine, unable to experience sexual pleasure and many more issues, but it is still offered in a range of countries. And I think the responsible thing would be to say certain surgeries we won't offer because the outcomes are too bad. Mm. I think that's definitely a great point that we can't perpetuate um, the medical or the surgical transition is the only way, um, especially if um, not so much maybe here, yeah, I'm not sure about Australia, but um, where it could become an industry, right, that um, it generates a lot of money. I'm sure maybe not so much, um, but it is hard, I think, for the medical field to take on board anything outside of a medical solution or a surgical solution. Um, and like you said, it's so important that there has to be the role of um, allied health, psychology, gender studies, transgender studies, sociocultural studies, just because there's so much that goes into this identity of a person. And it is hard, I think, for for medical students and I'm sure other allied health um, students and professionals to 
know how far, quote unquote, to take it. Mm. So you want to support your patient in, in doing what they feel comfortable with. Mm. But if they're feeling comfortable with doing that thing because they feel that they won't be respected, that they feel unsafe in society, I feel like that's a difficult area to, to negotiate. Mm. So if you're not educated at all, like... I even think about psychiatry, which is probably the most non-medical medical specialty. And I can say that because I want to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> like even then, it's they lack so many aspects of like the culture and sociology. Like we've done some assignments in like First Nation health and everything, mm-hmm. and I just don't feel like we're prepared enough for that aspect of health. And we just, they always like to push to like psychosocial bio, psycho biosocial, but like we only really learn the bio and like we really <laughs> touch on the social, socio. And even then it's really like, can they take care of themselves at home? Mm. Um, and it's really something that needs to change because you know, humans are multifaceted and it's not a new concept that they are. And we need to address so many more things than besides just hormonal or surgical or something that we can physically yeah. do with our hands. Um, but um, one question I had for you, David, um, is German is a gendered language, isn't it? Oh, well, yeah. Gendered. So we must be... Yes. Even that, I didn't even think about the linguistics would have such a big impact as well. Mm. Um, many European languages also say French and Spanish and Italian. They have this thing that every noun is gendered. And you have to remember that when you learn German as a second language. Is it die, der or das? So there are three versions of the the article. So D is the female article, der is the male article, and das is neutral and is normally only used for objects and non-living things. So every noun is gendered, but then also when you refer to people, so for instance, if someone is a professor, you have to consider, is the person a man or a woman? So professor would be male and professorin would be a female professor. And there's no form for referring to a professor who positions themselves outside the gender binary, of course. And the same applies to friends. A male friend would be Freund, a female friend would be Freundin. So it's not like in English where there are so many words you can use in a gender neutral way, but in German, it's just not possible. And I have to say, I'm really grateful that I'm currently teaching, writing and speaking mostly in English because it's so much easier to communicate in a way that is inclusive of gender diversity. And yeah, so it's interesting. Recently, there have been a range of people in Germany who've tried to make suggestions for how the German language could be changed in order to be more inclusive. But this has been met with a huge public outcry because people felt that they are now being told by gender ideologues how to speak. And some of the suggestions that have been made just couldn't be pronounced. 
So again, it was not perceived as something that would be practical to use in everyday life. So it's a very important, but also contested topic. And there's another difference between Germany and Australia that is relevant for gender diverse people. There are very strict laws in Germany when it comes to changing your name and gender entry. So you have to go to court and have to be reviewed by psychiatrists to support a request to have your first name changed. And also you need to change it in a gender specific way. So you cannot choose a gender neutral name like Chris or Sam, but you have to provide evidence that the name you've chosen is either clearly male or female. And also until recently, you could not apply for a change in the gender entry of your birth certificate without having had surgery that made you infertile. But luckily this law has meanwhile been declared unconstitutional and it no longer applies. So I would say things are very much more restrictive in Germany in this regard compared to Australia. Interesting. I, I don't, yeah, it just seems a bit odd in regards to, you know, just. It's just an example of these sociocultural forces, right? That um, influence communication and that are not under people's control. Those forces are also different in terms of language context, but of course also culturally. For instance, in terms of how do we address each other? And in German, we have this formal form of address. So it's not only you for everyone. When I speak to my supervisor, I have to say Frau Professor, whatever the name, which means I tell the person you are a woman and this is your title and this is my position in relation to you. And I can't just use a person's first name. Whereas I think, you know, in Australia, the way I relate to people seems so much more informal. And also this makes different conversations possible, uh, particular in an organization that is traditionally very hierarchical, like uh, universities, but I guess also healthcare settings. So I would think it's easier to have a personal conversation with, say, um, someone in the healthcare setting in Australia compared to Germany. I remember it was just like a year 12 English thing they love to push about language being powerful, which it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm just editing that. Um, but it's, I'd be curious about because of how um, gendered the language is, if that influences how strict the culture is in regard to gender as well, I'd be. I mean, there are still so many questions to ask, but I'd like to say, I think your initiative of working on these podcasts is already a great contribution to letting people know about different ideas about gender and gender diversity. And as I told you before, I have to do the same with my students because currently we do not have anything in the curriculum about diversity in terms of gender and sexuality. So I think it is really important that healthcare practitioners become more aware of the fact that we are working with individual people who come from all sorts of backgrounds and are diverse in many different ways. 
And we need to ask ourselves, how can we do justice to these people? How can we establish a relationship with them where they do feel safe? And you mentioned First Nations Health before BEAD. Out of that field has come the really helpful terms of cultural responsiveness and cultural safety. And these terms apply so much also to gender diverse people or basically any person we are working with. So how can we provide culturally responsive practices? And how can we work in a way that people feel respected and appreciated as the people they are and uh, feel culturally safe? And where do we get the training to be able to do that? What is it we need to read? What is it that we need to know about ourselves? And I'm a little bit hopeful that this will become increasingly important in the medical field and in the allied health field. Um, I certainly see it happening in speech pathology. There's been a huge shift, at least towards acknowledging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. There's been a public apology last year to acknowledge the harm speech pathology as a profession has done to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And a reconciliation action plan has been developed and the code of ethics has been changed to reflect this focus on person-centered and culturally responsive care. And also there's been a paradigm shift in the professional association of transgender health at the international level. So gender diversity is no longer seen as a mental illness, but as a part of human diversity. And the standards of care have been adapted to do justice to this view. So I think there's a really positive process happening. And I don't think this development will stop or be turned around again. <laughs> That's such a nice note to end on, to look sort of into the future. Hopefully it can only go up from here. Fingers crossed, because it would be pretty bad if it got worse. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time, David. We really appreciate all of your expertise, all of your experience, both personal and professional. Um, do you have any sort of finishing comments that you'd like to make? I would like to thank you both for the invitation to speak to you about these important topics. It's really been a pleasure. I hope we can continue our conversation at some stage and maybe it would also be possible to connect speech pathology students with medical students because speech pathologists also need to know more about medical professions than what we currently know. So thanks so much. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. We didn't expect to be able to get this kind of excitement from professionals like yourself. Um, we were a bit nervous, to be honest, that no one would <laughs> want to help us. But no, we really thank you for being willing and open to answer our questions. And we would love to collaborate with um, your students as well. I know that Melbourne Uni students sometimes get a bad, get a bad rap. <laughs> but we're not all mean. And we're very excited to be able to work together more in the future. Great.